0: Hi, I'm Steve Lance, your host of the Capitol Report on NTD News. If you have not done so yet, please hit that subscribe button to stay up to date with all of the latest news coming out of the nation's capital and beyond. Besides the unprecedented election for Speaker of the House, the Republican National Committee, RNC, will have elections later this month. Over 70% of Republicans said the party needs a new leader. That's according to a survey conducted by the Trafalgar Group. How is the republican party facing the challenges to find out i sat down with harmeet Dillon, one of the leading candidates here's our exchange
1: frankly since that 2017 inauguration i feel like that was the last last happy meeting of the rnc that's been six years now because we have lost every successive election since then and i count the recent election where we did narrowly win back the house but it's by such a narrow margin that Kevin McCarthy doesn't have an assured path to speakership as we speak that's being wrangled over and a red wave that should have been ours because of the historic opportunities in this election was was not even a ripple hardly and so My biggest concern is that if we don't have a change in leadership and a fresh vision, we are gonna lose in 2024. And that level of failure is simply unacceptable to me. And I think almost every Republican in the country, except for a few members of the RNC, who think everything is hunky-dory. So I feel like we need to immediately adapt and change to the current voting laws, which have been changed under our noses. We don't like some of them. But if we are not competing to make sure that everybody starts out the election time by claiming their vote on the first day that voting is available, if we are not training our workers to hustle the ballots, not hustle the voters, but hustle the ballots into the ballot box, we are losing. Why did Katie Hobbs not have to debate with Carrie Lake? She had already banked hundreds of thousands of votes while that conversation was happening. Okay, the same of John Fetterman. He barely had to debate. He did it late because, again, he had a Democrat machine that would have elected him if he were a ham sandwich. It did not matter the quality of the candidate. We're not doing that. We're not training our workers on how to cure ballots. Ballot curing, which is something that goes along with uh, mail voting, is how... One of our California congressmen, Mike Garcia, won his first race and has maintained it. Um, I feel like the spending at the RNC is incredibly wasteful, and you may have seen some stories about flowers and makeup. I'm not talking about that, although that's also wasteful. I'm talking about failed consultants who take away hundreds of millions of dollars that we raise from average Americans. They produce losing races, they've been there sucking down our cash for over a decade, and they continue to enjoy their privilege. That's outrageous. The cost of fundraising is outrageous. We have very fat margins at the RNC. We have like, Turning Point is a very, very lean operation. I think we could tighten it up fiscally. I've, you know, I run a business. I'm the head of a 40 person law firm. And uh, finally, we have to respect that it's other people's money.
0: If you do get elected, um, what what is your vision for garnering more uh, independence and democrats into the party
1: this is a this is a complex issue what we have seen in the last election cycle and even before that is democrats have played in our primaries using dark money and other efforts to select our candidates for us and so candidates have to fit the district i mean the candidate mike garcia who wins in california cannot be the same candidate who would win in montana okay so I think we have to play a bigger role. Now, the party rules currently say that, you know, you can't play in primaries or interfere in them. Okay, that means, you know, a lot of different things, but that doesn't mean that as party leaders you can't sit down with multiple candidates and sort of work it out. Democrats do that. Democrats hustled Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg out of the primary in 2020 to make sure that Joe Biden had a clear field for whatever reason. They may be regretting that big time right now. But um, so I think that the party has to has to play a leadership role. The party has to have its own messaging and talking points in leadership. There are other people in the party, former presidential nominee candidate and President Trump. He has his certainly views on things, and I'm, I'm one of Trump, President Trump's lawyers, and so I really respect the former president a lot. I've supported him, I've voted for him twice. But the party has to have its own vision of what matters. We have a party platform, for example. Nobody's defending the platform. You know, like we have like all kinds of issues out there. We should have had some messaging worked out on the Dobbs case. We knew Dobbs was coming down from the leaked opinion. We also knew from the argument at the Supreme Court how it was going to go down if you're a lawyer. I think we were caught flat-footed because we were afraid of the issue. But, in fact, life is so much more popular today with younger voters than it was when I was young. When I was young, we didn't have the ability to tell that pain started at 15 weeks or fetal heartbeat or things like that. We shouldn't have shied away from it. We should have embraced it and said, this is federalism. There are different laws in different states, but here's how we're going to try to convince you and win over your heart on the life issue. We didn't do that. We haven't done that. We were afraid of it. And then we complained about it afterwards. So look, you can make an excuse for one cycle, two cycles, three in a row, and now you're asking for a fourth. It's just it would not work in the business world. It should not work in politics. It doesn't work for me, and it doesn't work for the vast majority of Republicans.
0: Harmie Dillon, thank you so much.
1: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: With so much turmoil around the world between Russia's war with Ukraine and the constant threat of the CCP and the South China Sea, is the United States the dominant superpower? To discuss, I spoke with Thomas Lynch. He spent 28 years of active service in the U.S. Army at various command and staff positions and is now a research fellow at the Center for Strategic Research at the National Defense University in Washington, D.C. Here's a look. Dr. Tom Lynch, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Yeah, Steve, great to be with you today. And might I just uh, mention uh, that I'm here in my capacity as a researcher at the National Defense University, and so what I'll share with you today represents the fruits of my own research, analysis, and writing, and not necessarily the positions of my university, NDU, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Thank you so much for the clarification on that. Uh, Doctor, I just want to get your thoughts right off the bat
0: here with so much uh, what appears to be positioning and going on in the world right now. uh, When it comes to the world's greatest superpowers, uh, let's talk about China, Russia, and the United States. Uh, Where do things stand from your perspective?
2: Yeah, Steve, I think that's, that's the great, and really kind of uh, what I share with with my students and people that I research and write for is kind of the, the, the change in the geostrategic paradigm that we've all lived through for the last decade, right? We moved from a period of almost 25 years where really, in terms of history and international relations theory, there was only one country that was truly a superpower, and, and that was us, and by a superpower, I mean a country that had both unique capabilities primarily militarily, but also economic and diplomatic, uh, that were unrivaled by other countries. Second, that we applied those capabilities outside of our own region. That is, we applied them globally. And third, that other countries perceived us as being really a global strident power that could influence them on a day-to-day basis. What's kind of happened in the last uh, 15 to 20 years is, Two other countries have basically stood up and said, nah, not so fast, America. We we have our own aspirations and interests, and we don't see yours as aligning with ours. And we're going to convert our sinews of power into things that will allow us to uh, display unique attributes uh, Russia, militarily primarily, but also with respect to its, its gas and oil reserves. And China, of course, economically building and developing and then converting that power now increasingly into military and other diplomatic tools and assets. Now, in one of the texts that you've uh, written and
0: edited, uh, you talk about the categories in which major powers compete in in for. With that said, when you analyze how China is is gradually building um, within those categories, is there a red line that you think the US military should set or that you view would be uh, they have crossed that line?
2: Yeah, that's an excellent point. And I think in context, and I appreciate you bringing that up, uh, I and some fellow colleagues who have been researching and writing on this now extensively for the last four to five years you know, really have gone back and looked at the interaction of, of uh, the, the states in the global state system over the last 400 or 500 years, as well as the interaction between the great powers during each of those eras. Um, and and there have usually, over history, uh, been three or more great powers vying, jockeying, uh, trying to assert their power and their influence to gain and attain their interest, whether that be territory, or whether that be, um, you know, uh, economic uh, dominance if they're not owning the territory, or whether it be kind of, you know, uh, military suppression of, par- of, al- of neighbors from doing anything that's not against their interests. Um, so my point firstly would be that we are in a time now that is much more like time since the 1600s, where you have multiple great powers with divergent interests jockeying and competing with one another, sometimes conflicting and sometimes clashing militarily with each other. Always a dangerous phenomenon if great powers clash, uh, but usually competing and trying to find influence in three, actually five areas uh, as we define them. The first is economic. Okay, always competition and tension between great powers in terms of economics. The second is political and diplomatic, no surprise there. Um, the third is military, no surprise there, trying to build influence and, and gain access to, uh, to leverage um, to get things done the way your country wants it. And then two others, ideology which really has to do with how attractive a country is and appears to others as a source of influence by attraction. And then finally, something that we identify as being a little bit different than just the ideology, which is the way in which information is exchanged. That is, does a country believe in openness, free exchange of information ideas, inside and out and around, or is it more restrictive? And at the same time, does it pursue kind of a a means and a mechanism of exchanging ideas that allows for popular views to develop and exchange globally, or does it try to compress or suppress those? That also has to do with attraction and how a state gets its messaging out. So in terms of how the U.S. looks at Russia or China, I mean, we really need to look and see how we're doing in those five areas. Um, And uh, in the, the writings I've done over the last couple of years, I think it's fair to say that. Russia, but particularly China, has made significant advancements in a couple of those areas relative to what U.S. power had been when we were the one superpower. Uh, And China, particularly economics, has growing and continues to grow, although I think one has to be careful that economic statistics out of China, most observers will tell you, uh, need to be scrutinized quite heavily. It's always not clear that they don't try to paint somewhat of a rosier picture on what they're doing and how they're doing it in terms of there. And so that economic growth is significant. And then the question is, how is China converting that into military power, to, 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 to move into an area where they might have the ability, in terms of their economic strength but then also their military strength, uh, to coerce outcomes to coerce changes in the international environment, or even the regional environment, that play more to their ideological preferences as opposed to those that the U.S. and its allies and partners have preferred over the last uh, 75 to 80 years. And so I think that's what we need to watch. And I think we are watching it carefully. And I think, like the Heritage Report alludes to, we are concerned that Chinese efforts to move their economic power and wealth into these categories of building out a more capable military, particularly in areas that would deny the U.S. and its allies and partners access militarily to the region should they choose to take more aggressive or assertive action against Vietnam, against the Japanese for control of certain islands that they dispute, or even against uh, Taiwan in a Taiwan scenario, that China has made significant advances in those areas, not yet to the point where they could either have an easy or expect a winning outcome in any of those scenarios, but that where we need to acknowledge that they are building a capacity to do that, and so that they have the will to do it, we have to build something out with our partners that can counter that, make it less easy for them to feel that they could secure those kinds of gains by violating the norms of sovereignty and peaceful resolution of disputes with their military capacity. Dr. Tom Lynch, really appreciate your perspective.